Hello and welcome to Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. Thank you for tuning in and hopefully you're enjoying the show and the variety of eye and ear opening guests that we bring to you on as regular a basis as we can. We're currently free and intend to stay that way. We're completely non-profit and available on demand from our website alchemyradio.net and from iTunes. And our listenership is increasing all the time as are the associated costs. So I'll make my by now weekly statement with regard to donations. The donations that we receive are exactly what we rely on to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format. And we're very, very grateful for any help you can offer. There's no fixed cost on donations and every little bit helps. So, for example, if you could spare even the price of a bag of jelly beans every month, it would go a long, long way. Our donate button is on the website and your support and assistance is greatly appreciated. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter, so get following and interacting with us with all your feedback, your guest suggestions and your other input. So, on to the show. This week's guest is star myth investigator David Matheson and he's here to talk about his current book, The Undying Stars. David, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are things today? Thanks, John. I'm great and it's a pleasure to be here. And I must say, I think we're going to have an extremely interesting conversation. It's a topic that I'm absolutely fascinated by and as time goes on, becoming more and more fascinated by and the work that you're doing with regard to it really delves well down the rabbit hole. And you come from a, a pretty unique perspective. So I'll ask you the question that I ask everybody on the show. How, David, did you get from where you were and what's your background to where you are now? Great. Well, I, um, I, I was prepared for that question because I, I love your show, John. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, so I've heard you ask that question before. And I want to emphasize that I think you can get to this kind of vista, um, if you will, from a number of different paths. It's like um, there's lots of people that are up here kind of on this hill that maybe we've climbed up from different directions, and then we're looking out and saying, wow, look at that. Um, but somebody might have started from the perspective of physics, or somebody might um, have done a lot of travel and encountered some of these ancient archaeological sites and come to it from that path. Um, even recently, I, I've been reading a book about shamanic drumming, and it's a book that I didn't pick up until after I published my book. And here's somebody who has a lot of experience, has talked to traditional shamans from traditional cultures, and is writing a lot of the same things. And I said, wow, this, this you know, person came to some of the exact same conclusions from a totally different way, and probably their pathway was uh, different. And, and they saw a lot of different things along the journey, but now we're looking out and saying, you know, the, the things look a lot like this. So I think you can come to it from a lot of different directions, and that's probably what we should expect if it's correct, right? Mm. People should be able to come to it from a lot of different ways. But my main approach has been from myth and literature and metaphor. I was, um, you know, I was someone who loved literature in high school and actually you know, kind of had a proclivity for it. And when I went, I uh, went off to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and, um, and I majored in English there, which I wasn't even intending to major in English. Actually, I was intending to major in history because I like that too. But the, the day that you had to choose, I just suddenly uh, kind of unexpectedly chose English based on what the English, you had to go to two different Department, so I went to history and English, and and what the English professor said moved me so much. I said, you know what, I'm going to choose English. So anyway, 
you know, literature, art, expressing the human condition is kind of the direction that, that I came to these conclusions from and studying really the myths that are woven throughout literature. Um, you know, I love the Odyssey, I love Homer, mm. I love Shakespeare. Um, some of the American authors like Herman Melville and Nathaniel Hawthorne are talking about, you know, really, um, you know, breaking free from mind control, things like that. But anyway, my parents were going to Machu Picchu and um, some years ago, about a decade ago, and I said, I want to get my mom a, a really special book about Machu Picchu. And I was looking around and I you know, was searching around on the internet and I got her a book by Graham Hancock, <laughs> Heaven's Mirror, because wow. it has Machu Picchu in there. Mm. And then I said, you know, I'm going to start reading some of this. This guy looks really interesting. <laughs> and I started reading some of his things. And um, because of uh, some of the things that Graham Hancock talks about. He refers to Hamlet's Mill, which was written in 1969. It's been an influential book, I think, for a lot of writers. And Hamlet's Mill talks about how all these myths seem to be part of some kind of very ancient system. In fact, um, they have this great quotation, the system is so ancient, they said, that the dust of centuries had settled upon the remains of this great worldwide archaic construction when the Greeks came upon the scene. So, so ancient that, you know, it was thick with dust before the Greeks, ancient Greeks ever showed up. And then they said, yet something of it survived in traditional rites, in myths and fairy tales, no longer understood... And then they say, we think that we've now broken part of that code. And it was really fascinating to me because I was familiar with all these myths. And they start showing how they connect with the stars. Um, and, and in ways that are not just coincidental from one culture to another, but, but use some pretty unique types of metaphors, whether you find a myth in, let's say, a, the Pacific Islands or ancient Egypt, which is intriguing. Mm. Um, so anyway... Um, that, that's kind of how I came to it. And, and I'll just close by saying, so my most recent book really carries that, um, it tries to really explain that system that they're talking about. And I had written a book previous to this one where I apply that system to some of the Babylonian myths, ancient Egypt, but I had really hesitated on applying it to the scriptures of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, because I was a happily um, Christian, literal, taking the Bible literally. So I was happy to apply these things to all these other myths and say, yeah, well, look at that. Look at that Greek myth really beautifully connects with this celestial um, you know, thing that's taking place in the sky. But I didn't want to see that in the Bible, because if you go down that route too far, you're going to discover actually that the whole Bible is composed of the same astronomical metaphors. So in this most recent book, what I do is I, I really, um, you know, dive right into that. And then I ask, what could this mean? What, you know, I've just had my whole paradigm kind of uh, smashed when I wasn't really trying to smash it. Um, but now, okay, it doesn't mean what I thought it meant. It must mean something different. Mm. And do you think, David, that there was almost a kind of a subconscious fear of what you might discover if you did apply it to the scriptures and the Bible and the teachings that you were so comfortable with? Oh, absolutely. I, um, you know, and I think that's a good point to bring up because somebody might say, aha, subconsciously, 
you were trying to get away from these strict, um, you know, things that the Bible tells you. Maybe you wanted uh, some kind of freedom to break some kind of, that's, at least consciously, that's not where I was at all. I did not want to have this nice, sure foundation that I was um, walking around on shaken at all. So, um, so I, I would I would counter somebody who said, oh, you were just looking to try and undermine the Bible. No, I wasn't. I was looking really hard to not undermine the Bible. And, and specifically in Hamlet's Mill, they talk about the myth or the story of Samson, mm-hmm. who's found in Judges. And, um, and, and I was actually going through a Bible study of Samson kind of at that particular time. And, I, and, and here I am talking about it and listening to it from a literal perspective. And I've got this nagging in the back of my mind, um, some of the arguments that uh, the authors of Hamlet's Mill make about how Samson the story really has so many astronomical elements in it that it's hard to deny. Can you tell um, us about one or two of those? Because I think it is quite yeah. pertinent and it's a great starting point as well, I think. Right. Well, and since it was my starting point, it's a, it's a good one to uh, kind of share with listeners who maybe are unfamiliar with it. So in the story of Samson, we're told that he uh, becomes enamored of this young woman uh, down in a place called Timnath. And so he goes from where he lives. He tells his mom and dad, hey, I've got to go meet with this young woman. And he goes down to meet with her. And as he's going down, and the scriptures say, you know, he's going down, um, he encounters a lion, a young lion. Let me see if I can actually pull it up here in the the scriptures here. So he's on his way down to Timnath to to meet this young woman. Here we are, chapter 14 of Judges. And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughter of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I've seen a, da- a woman of Timnath and the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for my wife. Anyway, so the mom and dad asked, wait a minute, is she, you know, is she from the tribe that we're allowed to? You're not allowed to have a wife from the Philistines. But anyway... He goes down, and behold, a young lion roared against him. So as he's on his way back down to, uh, to meet her, he encounters a young lion, but the Spirit of the Lord came mightily on him, and he rent him. In other words, he tore the lion apart, as he would have rent a kid, a young goat, as he would have torn apart you know, a, a young goat. He's able to kill this lion by his bare hands, because he's Samson. And he had nothing in his hand. It says he has nothing in his hand. And then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. After a time, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. And he took thereof in his hands and went on eating, and, and that was a violation of this uh, you know, special vow that he'd taken because he's now touching a dead animal, and mm. this is the same vow that says that he's not supposed to cut his hair. Anyway, so um, Hamlet's Mill, the authors of Hamlet's Mill, which is Giorgio de Santillana or Santillana and Hertha von Deckend, um, go to all these sources, a lot of them from the 1800s, and, and they say, you know, this has all the elements of the celestial realm. Here he is going down to meet a woman, um, and he encounters a lion. Well, it happens in the sky that 
you know, we have these beautiful constellations, and, and I didn't say in the intro, I've been fascinated and loved the constellations since I was a child. My dad always used to take me out to look at the constellations. So if you're thinking, okay, what constellations would this story match up with? It's pretty, it starts to jump out at you pretty clearly, especially because the most important or some of the most important constellations are arranged along the zodiac band. The, the zodiac band that actually the sun and the moon and our planets of the solar system uh, generally seem to travel or do travel through from our perspective here on Earth. So when you look up into the sky and say, well, where could the woman be? Where could the lion be? It's really clear the woman is Virgo and um, the lion would be Leo. We do have constellations that correspond to those two figures in this Samson story. And it just so happens that the, the woman, Virgo, if you go out into the night sky, she is in front of the lion. As, as, as our earth turns, you know, you're there in Ireland and it's, you're already underneath the, the sun, you know, full, full sun. I, the sun is just rising here in California where I am. So you're way ahead of us. But uh, as, the, as the earth is turning towards the east, you're going to see all the constellations are going to seem to sink down towards the west. It's mm. just like if you're driving down the freeway in your car and you see a billboard that billboard is going to seem to be moving backwards. And if you just think of yourself as not actually moving in your car, you can imagine that the trees and the buildings and the billboards and the signs are all speeding backwards. Yeah. Same thing with the stars. They seem to move towards the west because we're speeding towards the east. So the Virgo sinks down into the west and right behind her comes the lion. And actually on the, the zodiac wheel of the entire year, the woman Virgo is actually on the way down towards the winter solstice. We can talk about the whole cycle of the year, but we're told very clearly in this passage from the Bible that he's going down to meet a woman, but on his way down, he encounters the lion. Same thing as the sun is going through the year, it's actually going to pass through Leo before it passes through Virgo, and it's going to do that on the way down from the summit of the year, which is the summer solstice. You know, everyone goes to Stonehenge there mm. on summer solstice, and summer solstice is like the pinnacle of the year for those of us in the northern hemisphere. Our summer solstice is in the middle of June, June 21st or 22nd, depending on how the calendar falls. But that's the pinnacle of the year. That's the highest point that the sun ever gets to. And then it starts to sink back down. Well, it reaches that high point um, in between the constellations or the signs of, I should say, astrologically, uh, Gemini and Cancer. And after Cancer, it proceeds into Leo, and from Leo, it proceeds into Virgo. So it's going down from the pinnacle of the year is up near Cancer. And these signs were all, are all referring actually to the age of Aries. We can get into that. But So as we're going down from the pinnacle of the year, we encounter a lion. Samson kills that with his bare hands. Then we encounter a virgin. Then... Uh, some time passes, we're told, and as he's coming back, whoop, he encounters the lion again, but there's a difference this time. Some bees have made honey in the carcass. Yeah. And, um, you know, we could dismiss the lion and the, and the woman as just sheer coincidence. Well, these Bible writers happen to be telling a true story of a guy who went down to meet a woman, nothing too 
unusual about that. It was unusual that he killed a lion, but he was Samson. He did it. But, you know, let's not get carried away and start saying that this is all about the stars. But right in the middle of the constellation Cancer, there's Cancer is actually a very faint constellation, harder to see. The most distinctive feature of Cancer is actually a cluster of stars, a beautiful shimmering cluster of stars. It's uh, Messier object number 44. There was a guy named Charles Messier who cataloged all of these, and he called it M44. And you can go and, and see it on the nights when Cancer is, is visible, and it was called the Beehive Cluster. And sure enough, right before the lion, we've got a beehive right there in Cancer. And so we're just told in this passage that he encounters a beehive in the lion carcass. And if you look throughout the myths and art of, of the ancient world, a lot of times they'll show a lion with a bee coming out of its mouth or a bee flying right in front of its snout. And that's a reference to, to tell you that that's a celestial lion. And we're talking about the lion that follows right behind cancer the crab. And by the way, just one other quick aside, this is important, one we can maybe come back to, the goddess, um, the great goddess, whether she's Rhea of the Greeks or uh, Sibeli of the uh, kind of the Turkish region of the ancient times, um, is often depicted in a chariot that's drawn by lions. She's often following a lion. Because in the sky, um, you know, she's right behind, uh, or she's right, actually, um, she's right in front of the lion. Sometimes she's seated on a throne because her stars actually do appear to be seated on, on a throne, the way she's laid out in the sky. So a lot of times she's sitting on a throne and there's a lion next to her. And a lot of times her arm is outstretched because in the sky, her arm is outstretched. So anyway... Uh, this this connection with Samson, and there's actually many others in the Samson story that are celestial in nature. One of the most significant being he kills all these Philistines with a very unusual weapon. I don't know if you're familiar with the weapon that, that Samson uses to kill all these Philistines, but he kills, um, you know, a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. Mm. So we're told that he uses the jawbone, you know, of an animal a donkey, an ass, and he kills all these men with, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the first guy he might, if he, if he had to, you know, he the, grabs the first thing that he could find and kills them with the jawbone of an ass. But after, you know, one or two of those, maybe he might switch to something a little more, you know, useful than a jawbone. Yeah, I mean, he's making his task <laughs> trickier, even though he is Samson, to take it literally, he is making his task a lot more difficult to use that. <laughs> Right, and not only that, but you'll find around the world, actually, heroes who are using a jawbone, not necessarily of a donkey, but in South America, they use the jawbone of a tapir, which is a kind of a unique-looking South American mammal that yeah. you know we don't even have around most of the parts of the world. He uses the jawbone of a tapir. In, in New Zealand, the, the Maoris have a story about um, a hero who slays a bunch of enemies with the jawbone of his grandmother. So what's going on here? Something weird. Well, if you look at the constellation Orion, the most beautiful um, constellation in a lot of ways because it has the most concentration of bright stars. Mm. So most people 
maybe they're not even familiar with a lot of other constellations, can find those three stars of Orion's belt. And actually right now, this time of year here in September, if you go out early in the morning before the sun comes up, you can see Orion in all his glory. In fact, right now the moon is, is pretty close to where Orion is, but you can still see it because he's so bright. Above his head is a V-shaped constellation, which is actually Taurus. And the V-shaped part of Taurus, it's a very distinctive V. You can see it right now in the morning. Um, is above the head of Orion, and he seems to have his arms stretched out. And Taurus, the V part, is called the Hyades. Taurus also contains a little cluster called the Pleiades. But the Hyades is shaped like a V. And if you take your thumbs right now to the bottom of your jaw... You'll, you know, you can see that it's shaped like a V, just like the Hyades, yeah. just like that V in Taurus. You know, if you ever see a jawbone on a skeleton or something, it looks like the Hyades. Well, that's why Orion is reaching up to, to grab that celestial weapon of the V of the stars of Taurus, which is a bull, not exactly the jawbone of an ass in this case, but he's reaching up and it gets turned into a myth of Samson killing people with this type of jawbone and another hero to killing people with another type of jawbone but they're all referring to the same stars so there's some examples from from Samson there's actually others he ties together the tails of foxes um, and sets them all on fire um, he ties together so many that he couldn't possibly have done it all in one night the way the Bible tells us. But that's because they didn't intend us to actually take it literally. This was like a code. And they're using these celestial metaphors in Samson. And then, Okay, so then, just to close this off, I had to wrestle with this. And one of the ways that I rationalized it, or, or one hypothesis could be, well, okay, maybe this one part of the Bible, Judges, the book of Judges, it's got some weird stuff in it anyway. Maybe a little bit of celestial stuff snuck into Judges. Okay. But the rest of the Bible, of course, is literal, right? You know, there, don't, don't tell me that, um, you know, it's all like this. Well, if you keep going through the Bible, and once you start to understand the pattern, you will see that actually all throughout the Bible we have um, celestial metaphor from the sacrifice of Isaac when Abraham is going up the mountain. Once again, we're going up the mm -hmm. zodiac this time instead of Samson coming down from the summer solstice. Yeah. Abraham is on his way up, and then he's going to slay his son Isaac. But at the last moment, a ram, an, an angel tells him, "Don't, don't slay your son." There's, there's a, a sacrifice. A substitute has been provided, and it's a ram. It caught in a thicket, well, if you know the zodiac and start to say, well, what could that ram be? It's the constellation Aries. So as you go through the Bible, you will find these types of connections over and over. And, there, and, and the authors of the scripture have put so many clues, like we just demonstrated with Samson. They don't just put one or two. They'll usually put so many that it's quite clear what they're talking about. You can't deny after some point that it's actually, it's all celestial. And if there's other stuff in there, that's the part that came in. <laughs> it's not that the celestial stuff snuck in to a large body of non-celestial. If anything, it's the other way around. 
and Revelation is absolutely full of it, which is the next place that I went after after Samson. The next one that I really saw was in Revelation, and I and I detail those in the book. And actually, the first three chapters of the book are online on my website. You can preview them, so you can read about Samson in there. You can read about some other star myths that um, that are found in Revelation right there online. It's absolutely fascinating, fascinating, David, because. All that I mean, the the codes are the secrets. They bear all the hallmarks of some of the tricks used by spies and covert uh, societies, uh, right down through the ages. But I mean, as recently as I mean, the, the classified ads were often used by intelligence organizations to codify um, messages that they needed to get. And this is obviously uh, post World War Two, but before the information age really took over. And quite often. It's interesting now with hindsight to look back at the type of codes that were used because language sticks out and seemingly anomalous situations would arise. So, I mean, you you might see something strange in uh, a bereavement notice or the announcement of an impending wedding or something. And quite often these were used by spies and by people who were trying to communicate. And it's the very same thing that you're describing within the scriptures and the Bible. I mean, the up-down terminology is great because anyone who reads the Bible will see that the characters in the Bible seem to spend their time running up and down mountains. <laughs> and they must have been very, very fit, you know. Um, so the, the language is key. And of course, then these seemingly anomalous situations, such as Samson using the jawbone when he could well have used something that would be a lot more useful to him. Th- these are all clues. And when you put them together in the way that you've done, it all just makes complete sense. It's like the different pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. And until you can see the full picture, you don't really know what's going on. But if you know how to put them together, well, then you will see that picture. So the way you've put that together is absolutely fascinating to me. And I think it's it's a very easy way of describing, I suppose, the bones or the crooks of what your book is about, which is essentially that the ancients were trying to tell us something and that there is a way to unlock these secrets and traditions. But we do have to unlock them because something has gone on in the interim and things aren't as obvious as they should be. So what's happened? I mean, are we looking at a, a giant conspiracy here or a cover-up why don't we have access to this information in the normal way yeah great so you're you're seeing a lot of great connections and 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 your reference to the modern world i think is fantastic let's just put that um you know on the on the counter here so we can grab it easily later because i do believe that there's some evidence that there's certain people who still understand this whole system um, and that's an intriguing thought that maybe some of this knowledge has been passed down among certain groups and, um, and, and those people were telling everybody else, no, 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 it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with anything but a literal interpretation. Um, <clears throat> so I do actually title my book, so my most recent book is called The Undying Stars and the subtitle is called The Truth That Unites the World's Ancient Wisdom and the conspiracy to keep it from you. Mm. So, um, so, so, one thing I will say is, um, as I alluded already with Hamlet's Mill, I am not the first person to notice these correspondences. I think if you read the Bible enough, you will um, potentially encounter them for yourself, especially if you're someone who loves the stars and really um, looks at the stars frequently. Eventually, you may start to see those without anybody else saying it. But there have been people through history 
who have tried to explain it or who have explained it in, in different ways. And the Hamlet's Mill, I'll just say, for those unfamiliar with it, is very, is very um, circular and tricky in the way it, it will pretend like it's going to explain it, and then at the last minute it won't. I'll just, I wrote down, actually, a quotation from Hamlet's Mill just to show that. I try and explain it really clearly, but I want to emphasize I'm not the first person to say this. In fact, there was a, an English preacher in the 1800s who was actually thrown in jail for preaching sermons on this very subject and saying, hey, everyone wake up. This is all celestial. It's not literal. And the authorities didn't like that very much. He spent three years behind bars not all at once. They threw him in jail a couple of times mm. to try and persuade him. His name was Robert Taylor, and I uh, refer to him a lot in the book. So he's explaining it a lot. Hamlet's Mill, here's this passage where they, they're talking about an Iranian myth where there's a murderous uncle, and, the, um, and, and he says, the murderous uncle turned himself into a creature of the deep waters, plunged three times into the mystic lake of Vurukasha. The glory escaped through an outlet which led to a river to the beyond. The name of the first outlet was Hausrava, and the original Avestin, uh, Avestin name of Kai Kusrau. This, and here's how they conclude the paragraph, this should make the epic and design tolerably plain what they, you know they, they 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 lay it out and they say um you know this probably relates to a celestial myth they explain the the myth in just those words that i've just read and then they finish by saying well that that makes it all clear and they move on to something else and the reader's going it's not clear at all to me yeah what's going on <laughs> and actually i would say you know i don't have the I don't have the notes of what they thought it meant, but I would say this, again, is Orion. Um, this is a nephew who's killed by his uncle. And if you're familiar with Shakespeare, I mean, not, it's, it, the nephew isn't killed by his uncle. The uncle kills the father of the nephew. The father is the king. The uncle wants to be king, so he kills, kills the hero's father, takes over the throne, and then the hero has to, you know, figure out what to do. And that's the plot of Hamlet, mm. where the father has been killed by the father's brother. It's also the plot of The Lion King. If you're familiar with Disney's The Lion King, yeah. you've got this great lion. His evil brother kills him, and then the young Simba has to figure out what to do. That's the same plot as Hamlet. It's actually the same plot as Osiris is killed by his brother Set, and his son Horus has to avenge him. So this goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. They're tracing it out from an Iranian myth. All these myths have to do, I believe, with Orion again. And there's actually a river that comes out of a, a spot near Orion's toe. That's the river Eridanus, or the Jordan River. Um, so that's what they're talking about in this passage. They don't explain it. They just say, well, he dives into the water. The water's name is this. That happens to connect with Eridanus if you, if you linguistically you know, play with it a little bit. Mm -hmm. So that's why I believe it says that, but they just leave it. So, okay, to get back to your original question was, you know, what does it all mean? So, so in the book, I try and lay it out and explain the system a little more systematically so that it's easier to grasp. And, um, and just one other, I, I do want to make sure that I get this out um, on the way to what it means. Because what we've been told it means is that it's all literal. Here, you know, are these 12 tribes of Israel and they had these adventures. Here's the 12 disciples of Jesus and they had these adventures. Okay. 
those 12s that repeat, we get mm-hmm. 12 Olympian gods. The zodiac has 12, is divided up into 12 signs, and it was very anciently. Um, so that those are all zodiac figures. Um, and in the Bible, we've got, you know, we've got all these things being described as if they're literal. So actually, you can be excused or, or you know, literalism, I'm, I'm taking it to task quite a bit. But people, in one sense, can be excused for taking it literally because that's the way it's really presented. After all, the scriptures themselves are describing it as if, you know, they don't say, now here's a metaphor about Samson. They say, Samson did this, Samson did that. But what it's doing is it's bringing down the stars down to earth and putting them in human clothing, if you will. That's what, the, the, that's what it's doing. And if we take it literally, um, we're actually missing the point because their purpose in doing this was to teach a spiritual truth, not a material truth of this is what physically happened on earth because it clearly is happening in the sky. But they're saying, let's talk about it as if it happens on earth because this is all a metaphor for the human condition. These stars that I'm talking about as if they're humans walking around, that's what you are. You, reader, you, listener, are a star that has come down to earth and is, you're, you're not literally a star, but metaphorically speaking, you're a spirit or you have a spiritual component, a, a, a heavenly component, a celestial component that comes from the realm of of sky or of air and fire, not from the realm of gross matter, this material world Hmm. that we're living in. These bodies, you know, we're told that Adam was made out of clay. These bodies are made of earth and water. Those are, you know, the four elements. You've got earth, water, those are the lower elements, and then you've got air and fire. Those are the higher elements. Obviously, the stars are moving around through the, the circles of air and fire up there and down here on earth. We're made out of matter. We're made out of earth and water. And they're saying, guess what? You know those stars, how they seem to sink down each night from the sky and hit the earth and plunge into, you know, the Western Ocean? If you're staring out across, you know, the Atlantic from Ireland, Mm -hmm. you might see them plunging down into the ocean. Where I am in California, if I go out to the coast, I'll see the stars seeming to sink down into the ocean. If you're in the middle of the continent, you'll see them sinking down into a hill or something. They're plunging down into the world of earth and water, just like you plunged down from this higher realm. You plunge down into this human body. You're going through, you're plowing through this life, just like the stars seem to go plow through the under you know the the underworld they seem to plow through the world of earth and water and then they pop up again on the eastern horizon and beautifully rise back up into the sky the sun does this too by the way every day right so you're like that that's what they're that's one thing that they're trying to tell us it's it's a um, you know whether you believe that message or not i believe that it can be demonstrated that this is the message that the myths are telling and Alvin Boyd Kuhn, who's an author who lived, uh, I think he was born in 1880 and uh, died in 1963. In 1940, he wrote a book called Lost Light, where he explains this metaphorically very, um, very clearly and very thoroughly. And it's hundreds of pages long, tons of examples in there. And, um, and that's what I believe all these systems are saying. So I, I believe that they're saying, you know, the literal message is, well, the message is this, X. Let's call it letter X. 
And I'm saying, oh, no, I think actually they can be demonstrated to be saying letter A, message A. And somebody might come along and say, well, I don't believe that the world is really like it's described in message A. I believe it's like you know, something totally different. Let's call it message G. Or I believe it's really like message X. You know, if the Bible literally is message X, I'm not talking about what is real. I'm talking about what it says. I'm arguing that it actually says message A. Whether you accept message A, whether you believe we have a spiritual component to us that existed before we were born and will exist again after we're born, and there's evidence that that we do have a component that's not strictly part of our body. Whether you accept that or not is a different question. I'm saying, I'm arguing that this is what it is saying. Now we can argue about whether that's really true or not. But I'm, I'm saying it's, it's trying to tell us A. It's not trying to tell us X. Uh, that's a different question from, mm. well, is X true or is A true? Well, well let's, let's set that aside for a second. It can be demonstrated to be telling us A, not X. So, and, and I'll just close with um, really quickly, because um, I do want to get this in. The, the, the scriptures, if taken literally, they talk about heaven and hell a lot. Yeah. And that's been used to uh, create a whole lot of anguish in people's minds. Um, hope as well, okay? So, for those uh, listeners who maybe um, gain a lot of hope and value out of taking these scriptures literally, I'm not trying to explode anybody else's belief system. I'm laying this out there for what I've found. You know, if you don't want to um, hear some of the evidence, you know, turn the tape off. I'm not trying to to blow up anybody else's paradigm. But for those people who have started to say, wait a minute, you know, things, I'm searching for these types of answers because things don't seem to exactly um, add up the way I've been told that they do. That's why, you know, I'm laying this out. I, I relate it to like the Truman Show, right? Truman yeah. is in this dome. Um, He's already started to see anomalies all by himself, and um, and people are actually coming up to him and saying, "Oh, that that doesn't don't pay no attention to that uh, that fixture that just fell out of the sky that that fell off an airplane that that doesn't mean you're living inside a dome." They're trying to trick him into staying inside the dome. I think that's wrong. If somebody's already suspecting that they're you know that there's something outside of this dome, then I'm here to say, well, here's the evidence, that, here's the outlines of that dome as I see them. And if you feel like walking out of it, you know, I'm not going to push you out. That would be wrong to take somebody who's happily uh, and, and drag them out and say, hey, see, everything is a lie. I'm not trying to do that. But for people who are saying, well, I'm seeing the outlines of this, and um, here's how the dome is put together. Okay, so the idea of a literal heaven and hell, I believe come from that same zodiac wheel. If you lay out the, the cycle of the, the year in a circle to where on the circle the high point is the summer solstice and the low point is the winter solstice, the lowest point that the sun gets to on its path, the shortest days of the year is for those in the northern hemisphere, the winter solstice falls in December, December 21st. That's the very pit, the lowest point of the year. And there's actually a crossover point where the days start getting shorter and shorter, and pretty soon the days are actually shorter than the nights. That crossover point happens around the equinoxes. 
So in the upper half of the year, we've got days much longer than nights. They get longer and longer all the way up to the summer solstice. Then as the sun begins to sink down in its journey, it starts to rise further and further to the south and it, um, and it sinks further and further in its arc across the sky. It actually goes across lower and lower. This is all because of the tilt of the earth as we're circling the sun. Um, it gets lower and lower. Then it crosses over to where nights become longer than days. That whole part from one equinox to the other where the nights are dominating, that is hell on the way down to the very pit of the year. Sometimes in older literature, you'll see hell is described as the pit, mm. the very bottom of the year. And there's lots of imagery that has to do with hell and that come from the bottom of the zodiac wheel. For instance, we've got a goat down there, Capricorn. So we've got a, a devil figure who is um, associated with goat type of imagery. He's got horns. He's got cloven feet. Then as we climb back up, we're going to cross that equinox again. Eventually, the days will start to get longer again. After we pass through Christmas time, you know, we, we, uh, we celebrate that the sun is starting to turn back up towards the north, and we're happy that it's doing that because now, eventually, days will cross over and become longer than nights again at the next equinox, the spring equinox, and we'll continue on upward all the way up to that summit of the year, which is like going up a high hill, the city upon the hill whose streets are paved with gold is... The, the, the land flowing with milk and honey, paradise, all these heavenly metaphors have to do with the sun at the very top of the hill. And that land flowing with milk and honey, if you refer back to Samson, we talked about the beehive cluster that's in Cancer. The constellations that are up there at the top of the year have to do with milk and honey. The Milky Way flows right below the feet of Gemini. The two signs at the very top of the year are Gemini and Cancer. So we've got the Milky Way associated with Gemini. We've got the honey associated with the sign of Cancer. That's the top of the year. That's the, the, the shining golden streets paved with gold. That's heaven. And I'm not trying to take away somebody's um, you know, hope of heaven, but... I do think that the fear of hell has been used as a, a kind of a mind club to beat people into submission. Like, if you don't obey this uh, thing that I'm telling you, you might go to hell. And, and I think that actually that is uh, based on a m massive misinterpretation of something that was never meant to be taken literally. And it's being taught literally. And I think a lot of the people who are teaching it literally probably believe it literally. I'm not saying this is such a massive conspiracy that everybody knows it, but I do think that the people who set up the literalist system did know it. And I think you can demonstrate that this literalist interpretation came in at a certain point in time and started to stamp out all the esoteric or metaphorical, allegorical interpretations that we're talking about here. I think you're absolutely right. And fear is such a powerful weapon. And if you're about to enter into war, as the powers that be most likely did in this case, based on the evidence. And I mean, in this case, they're, they're waging war, I suppose, on a form of celestial inheritance. Um, and if you're about to do that, what better tool to use than fear? Because people will then shy away from trying to expand on the truth or to learn more about something if they're afraid of it. Yeah, um... 
you can see this happening actually during the Roman Empire um, with the early Christian apologists whose work survives. They're very concerned with attacking Gnosticism or any sorts of texts that take a quote Gnostic perspective, which the Gnostic is actually got a lot of specific details to it, but just talking about it in general mm. is taking these things much more metaphorically. Um, so they are very concerned with stamping out Gnostic interpretations, and they pretty much effectively did that to the point that these types of interpretations had to go underground for the remaining, you know, 17 centuries after they, after the literalists kind of won the day. So why might they do that? You're suggesting, you know, one reason is if you're, if you're going into, if you're going into battle, you know, you might be able to um, convince people to, you know, you might be able to convince people to actually do violence to other people that maybe they wouldn't do otherwise if they if they are taking this literalist perspective or any any time that you want to get somebody i believe that actually deep down everybody has a sense of right and wrong and and what's called natural law yeah um that hey you know we can't just kill people um because we want their car that's just wrong mm. you know and um to get people to do that you've got to overcome something in their mind and so i believe that systems of mind control almost always or always accompany um massive getting people to do the wrong thing i mean look at the system of slavery it was massively wrong even people in the time uh, you know it, it it's left a huge mental scar in America, right? We're still dealing with the ramifications of this wrong that was done for centuries. And, and everybody should know that's wrong. Even during that time, you had people knowing it's wrong, but trying to find an excuse for it, excusing it to themselves. And one of the things they reached for was a literalist interpretation of the Bible. I mean, that's sad to say that is a, that is a, to, you know, we can demonstrate that. Mm. Anyway, so to, to get people to do massively wrong things or support or enable or look the other way or excuse massively wrong things, these sorts of systems of mind control are very useful. In fact, uh, they're probably essential. And that's a, that's a point that I've... Um, Mark Passio is a, somebody I've listened to a lot of his tapes, and he's the one who really says... Mind control always accompanies violations of natural law, and I think he's absolutely right about that. Um, but I'll go one step further, and then I'll uh, throw it back to you. And I would say, not only is this misinterpretation useful for imposing sorts of types of tyr tyrannical systems, because I believe it was it was imposed in the late antiquity the the roman em i can i can talk about the specific time during the roman empire that this literalist system was put into place but then basically it dominated western europe for the remaining centuries where we have serfdom you know people toiling basically their labor is not their own it belongs to the lord and by the way you got to you got to call this guy my lord and you got to call this woman my lady and if you don't you know we'll make life really hard for for you if you persist in not calling her that they put in this gigantic system of basically a form of slavery and a form of mind control directly supported by 
the, the victory that they had won in imposing this literalist system. So it plays out throughout history. But um, not only is it, I would say, have this political component or this earthly component, but I would say that this whole system actually points to even more amazing things about the way our universe is constructed that has to do with the fact that there's this unseen world, the unseen realm, the world of the spirits, the, the world of potentiality where things exist kind of in their seed form. Mm. You might poetically say, where does, you know, that oak tree come from? You know, is it in that little acorn? Obviously the whole oak tree can't be in there. No, it's the oak tree itself is in the world of potentiality. It's in the seed world, but eventually it can be made manifest in this world. These two worlds are connected and you can demonstrate that these ancient scriptures are actually trying to explain that this is the way the universe is really constructed, that there is an unseen realm, and that if you make... It, it, the, the, the two realms are connected, they interpenetrate each other to the degree that if you make changes in the unseen realm, they have impacts in this material realm. And some people may say, whoa, you know, you just went way off the deep end. I, I, I followed you up to here, but I don't... You know, wh what are you talking about? Well, actually, quantum physics modern physics, if quantum physics is indeed true, and it would have to be a pretty big conspiracy if it's not true. I've heard people say, um, and I've even had suspicions myself, wow, this stuff is so weird, this quantum physics, maybe they're all making this all up. You'd have to get all a whole lot of physicists on board, and eventually I think some physicists would say, hey, wait, I'm going to cry wolf, this is all ridiculous. Mm. Anyway, quantum physics seems to talk, in, and we can get into this a little more if you want, about a world of potentiality, a world where subatomic particles and atomic particles actually l exist in a form of kind of potentiality. It's almost like they're trying to say they're existing in the spirit world and then they manifest in the regular world when they encounter a human consciousness. Really bizarre. Anyway, I would say that um, it is at least possible that these people who wanted to stamp out the ancient understanding the metaphorical understanding, the esoteric understanding, are trying to hide that reality because contacting and making changes with within the other world actually do have an impact on this world. For instance, the Native Americans, you know, they had rain dances and they had sun dances. Do, do, could they really cause rain? Maybe they could. I mean, maybe they, did, maybe they didn't do that for hundreds and hundreds of years for no reason at all. You know they, what, you're yeah. right, because we're talking about paradigms essentially here, and it always strikes me as quite ridiculous. And I would have been of this, this mindset in the past myself, but it's, it's quite ridiculous when people can readily scoff at the esoteric or the field of potentiality or whatever it might be, yet they will switch on the computers and log on to the internet through wireless technology and that's perfectly acceptable. So, I mean, to, it's, <laughs> they don't it's, understand it's, how it works, but the universe is put together this way. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of um, examples of Native American healers who actually healed people through their techniques. And, and I'll go even further and say there's evidence all over this planet of some kind of ancient technological prowess that we can't even really completely understand. I mean, mm. you know, the pyramids, Machu Picchu, and by the way, all these places seem to be on the earth at specific energy points in, in a self-referential 
world-encompassing grid, I could spend 20 minutes showing you evidence that they knew the, the size and the shape of our spherical Earth. Whoever was plotting out these points, like where Angkor Wat is compared to Giza, compared to Paracas in South America, compared to Stonehenge, these are all specific points on the Earth. Whoever laid this out knew in some ways more than we do and were able to move stones that were enormous and seemingly cut through rock like it's butter and do all these things that are just incredible and and they also have knowledge um, if you go to the Amazonian rainforest there's so many different species and plants and yet they have all these different medicines and and the typical way of explaining that from our scientific paradigm is well it must have been a lot of trial and error you don't have enough generations of mankind humanity to do trial and error on everything in the amazon and by exactly. the way half of it would kill you you know <laughs> everyone would die out from the trial and error method how did they get that and they said well the plants told us well what do you mean the plants told us there's someone named jeremy narby who in 1999 um and, and lucy wyatt i gotta mention she's got a great book called um, approaching chaos which she published in 2010 she's right there in the british isles and she points to jeremy narby and also jeremy nadler um because Jeremy Narby said, you know, that they said that the plants told them, basically, they, they shum, you know, they're shamans, or they, they went on shamanic journeys to another realm where they learned information they couldn't have gotten otherwise. Mm. That is one of the only ways to explain this. And Jeremy Nadler, whom I also just mentioned, shows evidence that the ancient Egyptians were going on shamanic journeys as well. So the, the, the point that I'm laboring to make here is that more than just mind control in kind of a political sense, um, there may also be a component, and I believe it's pretty clear that there is, of contacting the other realm in order to gain information that you couldn't gain otherwise. And there's evidence that the ancients knew how to do this, or at least had a remnant of whoever went before that was really able to do this. Maybe the, you know, the people who built Stonehenge or, the, you know, the really ancient ones knew this really well. And all these texts that we have are kind of an echo or, you know, they tried to pass it on and we're, and we're kind of looking at it going, uh, we could do like, you know, baby steps compared to what they could do. But the people who want to be able to go and gain information or make changes that you can only make in that realm wanted to keep that knowledge for themselves. It's like um, a, a form of kung fu or a form of karate that they want to keep to themselves so that they can beat people up much more easily. If I know a few little kung fu moves, I can go to one bar or one pub after another and, and beat up guys who are much bigger than me just by using this one trick move over and over. And if they never catch on, it doesn't matter if they're bigger and stronger if I'm able to do this move. I think that they had this... Um, they saw the potential of this knowledge and they want to keep it from other people. And that's why you still see, you know, this very, very strange um, fact that you still see uh, these kinds of symbols being used, these kind of occult types of symbology going on in, in massive events where you say, whoa, wait a minute, what on earth is going on? Why, why? Why does that airline flight have that number or that symbol on its tail? What's going on here with these weird symbols? I think somebody um, maybe still knows this 
system, but they didn't want to share it with anybody else. So, so to to close out on that point, I think it's not just for political mind control. It could also be because you actually can. Uh, this stuff actually maybe does work, but they want to tell you that it doesn't. Well, I think it, it's beyond anecdotal. There is so much physical evidence, such as what you've described, um, be it the pyramids or Machu Picchu or whatever it might be. And essentially, we have perspective kind of being controlled by a false history then, because if we are to believe the narrative of history that we are taught um, every day of the week in the mainstream, well, then it shouldn't be possible that the pyramids exist, yet we know they do exist. So we're looking at some kind of an error there. And you're hypothesizing then that that error is a manufactured error. And I would, I would certainly sympathize with that 100%. So to expand on that then a little bit, is the cover-up almost like, um, I suppose, the Roman Empire or Christianity covering up a holographic vision of what reality is all about or these the esoteric shaman- shamanic ideals? And what is the threat to our control system then of these ideas? Why are they such a bad thing? Is it control for control's sake and power for power's sake and that's the threat? Or what way do you see it, David? Right. Well, that's a really good question. Um, You know, I suppose we could say um, there may be people who would say, well, what do you want to do? Explode everybody's belief in these literalist religious ideals that we've given to keep people from killing each other. You see, don't go down this road because if you start explaining that the Bible is not to be taken literally, then people will suddenly start to um, do all kinds of horrendous things. Now, I would challenge that. I would say that, you know, Herman Melville actually wrote Moby Dick to explore that exact or at least that's one of the things he's exploring in Moby Dick. Um, you know, is man and men and women in their state of nature, do they just kill each other with no, you know, without these, um, without these biblical scriptures, are we going to kill each other? Um, and I would say, actually, these literalist interpretations have often been used to get people to kill each other. So, um, but... One of the, um, you know, one of the one of the arguments might be, well, we have to control everybody, or else they would be, it would just be anarchy. And I would say, actually, um, you know, everybody only has a right to control themselves. Um, you, I don't have the right to dictate to anybody else anything other than that he doesn't. You know, I, there's a there's a uh, philosopher I like from the 1800s named Lysander Spooner, who talks a lot about natural law, and he says, really, the only thing that governments are ever enacted to do is to keep people from killing each other. And once they step beyond that, they are um, actually on the road to tyranny. Mm. So I do believe that people can band together to stop somebody from killing people. Uh, you know, if, if, if I see somebody harming somebody and he's so big that I cannot stop him myself, there's nothing that, um, there's nothing wrong with me saying to two or three people, hey, let's stop that guy before he really harms that woman and getting three or four people to do that. And that's basically a small government that we just voluntarily got three or four people together to stop that person. That's what a government should be, a voluntary um, association 
um, but but then it can go way over that line, and often systems of mind control are employed to enable governments to go way over that line um, and to get people to accept them from doing that. So um, I guess that's one way of addressing your question. I don't know if that's what you were getting at. Or yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, and that is pretty much what I was looking for there and where I'm coming from myself with regard to the issue. And I think... One of the broadest forms of mind control, I mean, lo- lots of people will talk about MK Ultra and the microcosmic form of mind control, but I suppose the greatest form of mind, mind control of all is to be able to shape somebody's worldview or somebody's historical view or their view of the historical record because everything else is framed by that then. So rather than focusing on, oh, well, if we say a trigger word, you will act in a particular way, it's more like let people work out for themselves what they should and shouldn't do based on the paradigm that we carefully create for them. So it's a much broader script as opposed to something um, more microcosmic, I think. Right. I think, well, that's a great point that you're bringing up there. And it's talking about really, look, efficiency-wise, having a trigger word for each and every, every person would take a whole lot of time, right? First, mm. we've got to put it into them somehow. Then, you know, uh, and, and so what, what this is getting towards is it's a lot, well, first of all, just raw violence, you can control people that way. And I'm not s- suggesting that there was never raw violence or wrongdoing before literalism came on the scene or a spe- specific form of literalism that I'm talking about here. Of course there's violence. But to control a population with sheer violence alone is virtually impossible. You'd have to have basically as many soldiers uh, controlling the population as you had. You'd have to have pretty much 50-50 and the people who want to run things don't want it to be 50-50, people on the inside and people on the outside. Um, they want it to be more like, you know, 1% and 99% or 0.001% and 99 point whatever. And that's a lot nicer if you can keep, but you're not going to be able to control people with just 1% of the people having the baseball bats and everybody else being afraid of them. Eventually, the 99 people are going to say, you know what, that one guy with a baseball bat, <laughs> let's all jump on him at the same time. So, it's really inefficient to use just raw violence. So you've got to add some kind of form of, hey, let's get them to go along with this. So let's shape the way they see the world. Let's, let's put in something to where whenever they see us, they'll call us sir. Look, you know, I went to the military academy. It's, it's had, you know, lots of great people I, uh, you know, great friends, great professors who really um, sparked a love of language and myth and metaphor and all these things. But it's also a system of mind control. Yeah. You better call this guy sir <laughs> every time you see him. And if you resist that, eventually, you know, they'll bounce you out of, the, of, of West Point and say, you know, get out of here. You don't want to call anyone sir. But if you accept that, you start calling somebody sir enough, eventually it just becomes subconscious. It actually, and this is what George Orwell knew, words shape our reality. In fact, our reality is really composed of nothing more than basically, you know, quantum physics would say it's, it's nothing more than consciousness shaping it. But we shape our, our reality through words and symbols and metaphors. And if you call that guy sir long enough, eventually what George Orwell told us was you'll actually subconsciously and just uh, without even thinking about it believe that that person's above you if you if you you know if you watch that movie 
40 years of slave or whatever. They make, they, uh, I think that's what it's called, they make him call the master this certain thing all the time. Uh, that, why are they doing that? Because they don't want to always have to use violence. They want to try and shape the world to where you accept your slavery or you accept the system until eventually you can't even see uh, like the Truman Show, when a, a light fixture falls down out of the ceiling, you can't even see that you're in a dome because they've told you you're, you're, you're not in a dome and, and, and your mind can't even see the evidence that you are. You start to make excuses even subconsciously for that light fixture falling down to where you don't, you know, you don't even um, question the the interpretation when the guy comes on the radio and says, "Oh well, we had a uh, part fall off an airplane today." Um, yeah, I, and I think it even goes. Clearly. No, you have, and I think it even goes a step further because quite often then, when 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 that paradigm is challenged, there can be an almost violent response. I mean, the cognitive <laughs> dissonance is so great that people will do anything they can to protect their worldview, even when faced with physical facts and. The Truman Show is a great example. It's my favorite film. I've mentioned it on this show before. My favorite film ever because of what it represents. And it's something that just rang really true with me. And I even remember going back to school. I think it, so much of this, this broad mind control begins in school. And I'm not saying everything about edu- the education systems around the world are wrong. But personally speaking, I think there is a huge amount wrong. And the mind control begins with the use of language. Um, you've spoken about, sir, and the way that slaves... Servants, going back to medieval times, would have to use certain words and certain titles. And that that begins in, certainly in Ireland here, every day of the week when you have five and six-year-old kids going into school and they have to say sir or they have to say miss or whatever it might be. And people can say that's harmless. And yes, in itself, it is harmless in that environment. But what it does is intrinsically formulate some kind of a, a rule within the person who has to be, who has to use that subjugative language all the time and it makes suggestion easier and easier and easier as time goes on. It's just like the, the, the frog in the pot syndrome, you know, it's, it's baby steps all the time. You boil that, boil that frog from cold water to warm, he'll stay in the pot until he's, he's dead and fully boiled. Whereas if you pop him into the pot and it's already boiling, he'll jump straight back out. And I think that's what we're looking at. It's, a, it's an ingenious way and I mean, there'd have to be a great, great understanding of the way not just the physical realms work, but I think the esoteric side and the field of potentiality and some of the terms that we've used there, those that would would look to formulate a system such as which exists today. And if they're looking to suppress and to create new paradigms and to allow people then to operate themselves within them while doing their bidding, there would have to be a huge amount of knowledge in there. So... Where did this knowledge come from? Is it that there was a great culture in the past that existed that used all this knowledge for good and then it was some way corrupted? Or, or what happened? And I'm, I know we're probably in the realm of pure speculation here, but I'm very, very interested to get your views, David, on it because something must have happened at some point. It wasn't that one guy was born one day, an evil genius, and he rubbed his hands together <laughs> and said, right, I'm going to control the world. Surely that's not what happened. Right, so... You know, great, uh, great insightful points that you're making there. And I would say that absolutely the schooling system, the educational system that we have does reinforce a paradigm. You know, we've mentioned it before about the historical paradigm cannot be the way we're taught in school, but basically from all the way from kindergarten or the very primary age, all the way up through the university and the postgraduate, we've got this view of history of, oh, you know, primitive humans and then boom, onto the scene comes 
people building pyramids and ziggurats and uh, wait a minute you know hunter gatherer to uh you know ancient egypt just doesn't really or you know um there's lots of reasons why that paradigm is uh can be demonstrated to be flawed. They yeah. clearly knew the size of the earth and the shape of the earth before they built the Great Pyramid. We can we can actually demonstrate that. So, as you said, it is speculative. Um, I I I try not to in my book. I don't go back really into deep deep history, other than to say, I do believe there's evidence that there was a very ancient, almost. Um, and, and really prehistoric, before any of our historical civilizations, Egypt or Sumer or any of the ones that have left us texts, there's evidence of something before that that was extremely advanced. There's evidence that ancient Egypt sprang up with a whole lot of knowledge that they didn't get by trial and error. Um, so there's evidence of an inheritance uh, from something that was lost. Let's just call it the lost civilization. How did that lost civilization get lost? I don't know. You've had, um, some people speculate there was a cosmic war, some you know, some kind of catastrophe. All those things, I would say, are on the table. But I would say that these, after that lost civilization, whatever it is, because you find this. Let's go back to what we started at the very beginning with these myths and the metaphors. Like I said, I can um, find a myth from New Zealand, uh, um, Maori sacred traditions that links up with the same pattern that's being used in ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, uh, South America. Does that mean that they were all connected and talking to one another? Probably not because there's centuries and even millennia between them somehow. Uh, one possibility is they're all talking to each other and that's how these myths repeat. They're, they're in Australia, they're in Africa, they're in China, they're in Asia, they're in Siberia, they're in shamanic cultures, they're in North America, South America, they're in the Bible, they're in Norse, they're in Celtic, Druidic. Um, these same patterns are found around the world. They could have all been talking to each other, but that is not the only possibility. They could have all been inheritors of some ancient predecessor lost civilization. That's another possibility. And I believe that's probably the much, much more likely possibility. Um, but I don't, some people will say, aha, you're demonstrating that the, the sublime stories in the Bible are all descended from the stars, are all connected to the stars. This obviously shows that primitive humans came down from the trees, we're looking at, couldn't explain how things looking around at the world around them looked up at the stars didn't know how they rose and set worshiped the sun worshiped the stars and all that eventually evolved into the bible and much more refined and sublime and beautiful but still at the bottom is just this kind of primitive awe superstition that's that's one way that this is explained but i would say and alvin boyd kuhn has a great quotation about this that's that's impossible because the the knowledge that is embodied in here they it's these metaphors are being used by somebody who knows what they want to teach that it's like these metaphors are so perfect and so um and they're teaching a very advanced you know something that actually anticipates quantum physics and it's a very sophisticated uh understanding of the of the earth and the human body by the way these are all all these metaphors actually 
we didn't even get into this, operate on a celestial level and a human body level simultaneously. For instance, um, crossing the Red Sea is... Um, I can show you where that is on the zodiac wheel, but there's also a Red Sea in our bodies, right? We're crossing the Red Sea right now as we go through this life because we're in, embodied in a physical body and we're crossing through the time when we are, a, you know, in a body with a, a Red Sea inside of us. So we're crossing the Red Sea right now. Well, these 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 metaphors are 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 um, evidence of an advanced spiritual consciousness, an advanced technological consciousness, an advanced celestial consciousness, an advanced anatomical consciousness, an advanced shamanic consciousness that is um, very hard to maintain the hypothesis that um, these are just primitive myths that just um, evolved into this shape and then, oh, they happen to, oh, how wonderful. We can use these primitive things that came down from the ape, ape man type times to demonstrate quantum physics too isn't that fortuitous i don't think it happened that way it's a real as above so below scenario there that you're describing as well right and that's i mean that you know that's that's part of the hermetic wisdom that had to go underground when the literalists basically took over western civilization commandeered western civilization and started stamping out everything else then you have this kind of underground knowledge as above, so below is, you know, the microcosm of each individual. Each individual, and I did want to get back to this point, and so I'm glad you mentioned as above, so below. Each individual is like a little universe. Each individual has, you know, a dome of the heavens right there on the, if you knock on the top of your head, that's it. That's the dome of the heavens. In fact, that's where it all takes place. The whole universe is actually you know, constructed and mirrored inside that dome of the heavens that each of us carries around. Each person is a little microcosm, a little metaphor, a little um, embodiment of everything out there. And in fact, and, and you've had Santos Bonacci on, I, I think Santos Bonacci's teaching is great. Yeah. Great teacher, great teacher. And he explains, and other, you know, people all the way back to ancient times, have talked about. There's a zodiac in our bodies. It goes from the top of our head down to the bottom of our feet. We mirror the stars, and that's what the, these scriptures are also teaching that. And that's why it's so wrong to hit someone over the head, because that's like destroying a universe. You don't do that. And so this gets back to the question of, well, how are we going to control, you know, hey, don't mess up this system. Yeah, we've got a little bit of mind control, but... Don't you like having, um, you know, mobile devices where you can watch football games? Or don't you like being able to see cat videos on YouTube? <laughs> um, you know, how would we... Well, first of all, I don't think we wouldn't have wonderful things in a system that's more free. But this system that compromises human freedom or that, that says, hey, you know what, it's okay to sometimes, sometimes we just have to assassinate people if their ideas are too, too dangerous. Whoa. You know, are we going to accept that that's, that's a true premise, that we have, to, we have to run this world through violations of human freedom and ultimately through tyranny, or we wouldn't have cat videos on YouTube? Well, first of all, I'd get rid of the cat. I'd, I'd say, fine, I, I guess I won't have cat videos if that's true, but I, but I would 
say, we don't even know what a system of true human freedom would look like or, or could accomplish. Yeah. But are you, you know, the question, the, the, the question back to someone who says, wait a minute, are you saying that everyone should have freedom to, to do whatever they want and governments shouldn't be able to, um, you know, constantly watch their every move with cameras and um, at all times and the NSA listening to their phone calls, what would, we'd have chaos. Well, um, do, you know, things, things would be much worse. I would, say, I would say to people, you know, look back at history and look at some of the things that this system has actually done to the Native Americans, to the Maya, to the Inca, the slavery um, example that we pointed out. This system, the system of... of um, uh, where you where you accept uh, the right of some people to kill other people um, for reasons other than stopping violence, right? If somebody's about to if somebody's about to kill me, I can use force to stop him. I think that's that's pretty. I'm I'm not saying that that um, you should just let someone come up to you and 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 kill you and you can't ever defend yourself. Yeah, I believe you know I believe that you can use force to stop that, but I don't accept that that. We should just be allowed to um, to grant some people. Some people are special, and so they're allowed to oppress other people. Is a horrible system, right? So, and I don't think any of us, if it was put that way, would accept such a system. So, um, you know, my book's not really a book about political philosophy, but this question of what happened does tie. It. This isn't just an esoteric question so to speak mm. it is esoteric but it's not just oh this is you know something that happened in the ancient times Th this um the ramifications of this system this system basically built the the situation that we have today and there's a lot of good things that we have today there's a lot of um you know i'm not unhappy about the level of human freedom that i enjoy but there are violations of human freedom that we should all say hey is there a way that we can reduce violations of human freedom and and help people to achieve consciousness because i don't think it's good to keep someone in the truman show situation right truman is asking isn't there something else and his friends and his friend is really has to bite his tongue remember his best friend you know, you can see he's conflicted. His best friend said, oh, Truman, this is best for you. I'm just going to lie to you. That's wrong. To, 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 when someone's seeking the truth, I believe it's wrong to deliberately say, oh, no, there's nothing else. Stay inside this dome. Um, Absolutely. You know, and I think there is um, a kind of a correlation with the cosmos when you speak about that idea. Because when we look out to the stars and into the sky, we're looking essentially at uh, infinity and that extends beyond any kind of um, mathematical uh, construct that we can put on it. And if we are microcosms of that universe, well, surely we should be the same. And the only thing that stops our infinity or our potentiality or whatever term we want to use for it seems to be this control system that sticks us in the dome and I, I just love that dome and that Truman Show analogy because that's what's going on all around us and I don't think that is the natural state I mean it's a suppression of consciousness and if as I think you believe and I certainly believe that we are expressions of consciousness and we're having a certain experience now in a particular supposed five sense reality I think it's far more than that but I don't think our consciousness, the natural state, is to have that suppressed, yet that appears to be what the control system is trying to do now. 
I absolutely agree with you, and I think that's the perfect way to phrase it. Is really, and, and Graham Hancock has has you know had a he had a TED speech called "The War on Consciousness," mm. and sure enough, it was censored. <laughs> okay, so if you don't think there's a war on consciousness, um, you know, look through history, and and it's still going on. And so, yes, I believe that you know it, it, we we do come through this incarnated life to um, one of our purposes is to raise our consciousness, to increase our consciousness, to raise that vertical component of the human nature, to the, the kundalini, you know, yep. uh, to raise the, the spark, that divine spark that everyone has inside of them. That's what these scriptures are talking about. But it's like it's lying there asleep. In fact, you don't even recognize it in yourself. You have to wake up and remember that it's in there. That's why it's called the hidden God, Amun, in uh, ancient Egypt, the hidden God. That's Amen. Yep. That's uh, when, when somebody says Amen, and uh, that's what they're talking about. It's re- part of our goal, part of our mission here in this world is to increase our consciousness to whatever degree we can to help others increase their consciousness and not to suppress other people's consciousness and so and certainly not to be on the side of the war against consciousness so i do totally agree with what you're saying there and that's why um you know i believe when we start i'm i'm looking at the scriptures i'm saying hey look i'm seeing this here and and isn't this amazing all these celestial metaphors but it really does Ultimately, the question is, well, what are they trying to teach? They're trying to teach what you just said, that vision of, of the consciousness, the infinite, every human being is connected to and reflects and embodies the infinite, and we're supposed to be raising our consciousness. So you can't start down that road without coming up against these questions that we've kind of gotten to about you know, day-to-day life. Well, what does this mean for the way I'm living? Well, we need to be living in a way that... You know, hopefully we're we're increasing our consciousness and that of other people, and not um, not hindering other people, or not telling other people lies, and certainly not doing violence to other people. Yeah, and I think your book is actually a great starting point for anybody who might not be familiar with these concepts or these ideas, because you've put it together in such a succinct way and it's very easy to understand I mean a lot of what we're speaking about is quite esoteric but even if somebody isn't familiar with that side of things and if they're coming from a straight up mainstream world perspective it certainly gives a huge amount of food for thought and it does encourage I think anyway uh, further exploration so where would you point people if they were to explore further or how can people get more information about the work that you're doing David? Right. Thanks for thanks for the that compliment. Uh, I hope it's um, systematic and clear. And I also do write a blog where there's an awful lot of content uh, for free. You know, just I write because I have to get these ideas. You know, it's a way for me to learn them more and to express them and share them. So there's a blog on on the internet. You can just actually do a search for my name David Matheson and you'll find the blog and it has links to the book but I would say that uh, really the the best book to read is the the book of the stars they're right outside of your door you don't have to buy anything you know if you're able to do so you can read the book of the stars every single night that's how I really uh, learned all this is by reading the book of the stars it's out there and if you look at it enough um, 
that you know the book of nature is there we're all connected to it we're all a part of it um but these ancient scriptures were there to help us also to make sense of it they've been used to uh restrict consciousness which i think is a real it's terrible to have them turned around that way but you can come to all these things yourself by searching through ancient scriptures from whatever sacred tradition you want whether it's the vedas of ancient india whether it's the scriptures of the bible uh, the norse myths or the greek they're all there so my book is called the undying stars you can easily find that with a search um, you can go to your local bookstore uh, any bookstore should be able to obtain a copy for you you can get it on amazon um, like i said my my blog it's actually the, the title of the blog is the matheson corollary which was the title of my first book when i started this blog was when that book was published so it's got um archives going all the way back to the material that was covered in that first book which is also still available but um so that might be a place to start but there's tons of other people who have written about this too i've mentioned you know santos bonacci has a list of books on his website that's a wonderful list he's got videos teaching videos you can spend hours and hours watching on youtube i've got a few videos on youtube that explain some of these myths and show it with like a planetarium anim animation um on my blog there's actually a um, there's actually an index to all the different times I've talked about constellations and kind of how to find them. So there's one post that has an index of, I think it's over 75 different constellations or something. Mm. Um, if you want to try and find, you, maybe you've never actually recognized the constellation Taurus before or Aries or Scorpio. I've got blog posts that discuss that. And then I've got another page that indexes over 50 different you know, I call them star myths. Some people call it astrotheology. There's a blog post I wrote um, you know, earlier in August of this year. It's called Hamlet, Hamlet's Mill and Astrotheology. I'll put a link. I'll put kind of a welcome, you know, welcome page to, uh, I'll put a post, welcome listeners from Alchemy Radio, maybe for people who've never been to my blog before. And Fantastic. I'll link, yeah, I'll link to that. And it's got myths from ancient Babylon, ancient Sumer, ancient Egypt, ancient India. It's got a whole index where you can click, okay, if I want to see, you know, Jacob and Esau or Sarah from the Old Testament, Moses, I've got links to blog posts that talk about um, some of the celestial connections. There's more in the book, um, in the Undying Stars, that I really go into a, um, a lot of them, but there's links to Norse mythology, um, from the Americas, some you know sacred traditions from North American, Native Americans, South America, Ma the Maya, um, all the way out into the Pacific, even ancient China, Japan. So, um, so that's that's a resource. But there's lots out there. There's lots of, like I said, there's lots of ways I think people can uh, get turned turned onto this information and and learn more about it. And I'll just say last thing, you know, the best way, looking at the stars. The, one of the best guides to seeing the night sky and the stars was written by a writer named H.A. Ray, who spells his last name R-E-Y, and he's actually a beloved children's writer and the author of the Curious George stories. Oh. So Curious George, you know, the little... Uh, actually, when you read the Curious George stories, as an adult, you look back and go, oh, wait a minute, that's, the guy throws his hat over that poor little baby monkey and takes it back to civilization to be a pet that's horrible right <laughs> but actually you know 
curious, George, that author, H.A. Ray, wrote some of the best books on how to see the stars. And one of them is called The Stars, A New Way to See Them. And that is just the best resource, I think, for, um, for finding your way through the heavens. So I think the message is clear. Get the heads out of the smartphones, great and all as they might be, and look up because we just might learn something. Well, you know, you can learn things from other people on on the internet too. I'm not saying that, but uh, absolutely, that's our heritage. They're inside of us too. The stars, they're they're up there, but they're they're inside of us. You know, traditional Chinese medicine says, "Oh yeah, you know, you've got something wrong here." The planet Jupiter, you better drink this type of a liquid because it relates to the planet Jupiter, and that'll help fix your liver. You know, you've got to you got to realize your connection to the universe and, and the rest of the world. And that that connection, I think, the people who want to keep us from us, they want to divide and conquer by taking away that connection. I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. David Matheson, thank you so much for joining me, and I hope we can do this again because I think we've got a hell of a lot more we can speak about. <laughs> thank you so much, John. It's been my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Sound it seemed to fight Came back like a slow voice on a wave of fight That one no DJ that was hazy cosmic ties There's a star waiting in the sky He'd like to come and meet us But he thinks he'd blow our minds There's a
I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio. Remember, as I like to say, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and ad-free format. And we're extremely grateful for any help you can offer. There's no fixed cost on donations and every little bit helps. So even the price of a cup of coffee would go a long way towards keeping us afloat every month. Our donate button is on the website and your support and assistance is hugely appreciated. And thank you to everybody for your recent help and support. We really couldn't do it without you. Our next guest is Michael Craig and we'll be discussing Secret Mars and the anomalous Red Planet. Until then, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?